One of the things that um, probably you don't hardly ever think about that uh, I think about more than you, and that is pastors' salaries. Um, Pastors' salaries are really uh, complicated. How much do you pay your pastor? Pastors, in our case. How, how, how do you decide how much to pay a pastor? Maybe uh, do you pay him by other people who are in, doing comparable work in the community. Um, so would that be a teacher? Or would that be a principal? Or would that be a CEO? I'm inclined towards the CEO end of the pay scale. <laughs> saying. Um, or do you pay them based on responsibilities, uh, on, on need, on merit, or on tenure? Um, it's complicated, but almost everybody, uh, one way or another, uh, tenure figures into it. How long you've been around affects you. So, um, I have the longest tenure at North Wake. I've been at North Wake uh, as of last month over, uh, now over 22 years. Um, Rob Craig, uh, nipping at my heels, 20, almost 20 years. Jeff Doyle's about 15. Daniel Creswell's creeping up on 10. Jake's close to 8. Greg Bowers is um, about 5. Uh, this, just as an aside, speaks really well of the church that you've been this gracious to your pastors that you have not run them off for that long. Right. It's really true. Um, but our newest pastor is a guy named Jay Burke. Some of you don't even know Jay. He's kind of on loan to us as he um, prepares to be an active duty chaplain. He's getting prerequisite pastoral experience here as part of our staff. He's been here less than a year. So um, Sam Williams is usually the guy that leads the elders in their salary considerations for uh, pastors, um, and he's not here today, so I'll pick on Sam. What if Sam Williams um, decides that he's going to recommend to the elders to pay Jay, the newbie, the same as me? the guy with 22 years' experience. And he kind of leapfrogs him over all the other guys. Um, now, I can tell you, Jay is happy with this arrangement. Okay? <laughs> happy, happy, happy. <laughs> Can't believe I said that. Um, <laughs> but the rest of us, we have a little meeting, okay? We have a little powwow. And me and Rob and Jeff and Daniel and Jake and Greg, and we get together with Sam. And we say, hey, Sam, if you're going to pay Jay X, then you at least got to give us X plus something, okay? Because we've been here longer, and I say 22 times longer, okay? We deserve better. Okay? We deserve more. Sam says, well, you guys were okay with your salaries until you find out what Jay was being paid. What's up with that? And we say, well, it's not fair. That's what's up with that. And Sam says, well, what if I say God told me to do that? 
and we slide the Bible across the table and we say, show me. <laughs> and Sam says, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 20. And this is what he reads, if someone can advance a slide for me. No, someone has commandeered the computer. We don't have slides right now, so. Oh, wait, there they are. It goes like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. And going out, again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius, day's wage. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, day's wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius, a day's wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. So we're sitting around the table, right? Sam reads us this story. We point out to Sam that the point of Jesus' story is not about setting pastor's salaries. It's not the point. Sam says, so what do you think it's about? We say, well, it's about the attitudes of people's hearts towards God and others. And Sam says, exactly. And we say, touche. <laughs> and that's where we are this morning, okay? That's what we need to understand this morning. This is the story we're going to look at this morning, and it's really not about pastor salaries. Um, it's not about your salary. It's about our hearts towards what God has done for us and towards others. So um, if you'll open your Bible to Matthew chapter 20, that's where we'll be uh, most of the morning. And I would like to pray for our hearts as we look at the scriptures together. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us see ourselves in this story. Help us not to wiggle out of it. Help us to be open to the good, convicting, redirecting work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Um, 
May your word have its full effect now and in mercy use mine towards that end. And we all ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the story that Jesus is telling about the vineyard workers is in a string of um, great reversal kind of stories in, in Matthew. Um, and one of the things that we learn is that the kingdom does not operate like you and I expect it to. Because her king is not like us. He's better than us. He is more merciful than us. So he runs the kingdom differently than we would. And as a result, we run into this series of surprising reversals. So I'm going to back us up to where where Jake walked us through last week. Encourage you to get uh, his CD in the lobby or or give it a listen online if you missed it because he goes in a lot more detail than I'm going to do this morning. But I need to run a string through what he did and connect it to me. So if we go all the way back to chapter 19, verses 13 to 15... Uh, we find that children who were brought to Jesus, they were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked the people for bringing their little ones to Jesus, right? But Jesus said, let the the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So the children get in. They get into the kingdom. They get access to the king. And and this is counterculture. Ben Merkel taught us that. Jake reiterated it last week. This is counterculture. Children were not the center of everything like they are today. They were not catered to like they are today. They were less than everyone else. And this befuddled the disciples like, kids get in to see Jesus, right? Kids get into the kingdom. Really? Kids? We didn't see that coming. It's not what we expected. So then the very next verses, we see a rich young ruler who comes, and he doesn't get in. Remember that story uh, Jake taught us last week? A young man heard this. Uh, the, the, he comes, and he says, how do I get into the kingdom? How do I get eternal life? They have this conversation, the young man, the rich young ruler, a very morally upstanding man, at least in his own eyes, uh, heard Jesus' teaching, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler didn't get in. And again, this is contrary to the the cultural expectation of the day. They thought, as we are often inclined to think, that rich people are blessed by God. And so they're at the front of the line. 
But to say to them that the rich young ruler, this morally upstanding rich young ruler, doesn't get in. This would be like me saying that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a seminary professor to get into the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Whoa. All right. We got a problem here. If the seminary professors are not getting in, you, and that's like jamming a camel through the eye of a needle. This is all upside down. Because surely those guys. Now, I'm not actually saying that it's easier, <laughs> that it's like cramming a camel through an eye of a needle to get a seminary professor into the kingdom. Okay? I'm saying it has that effect on us emotionally. I'm liable never to speak at Southeastern again at this point. I realize that now. Um, but the, the disciples are going, the rich don't get in? Really? We didn't see that coming. And so uh, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Who gets in? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things, all things are possible. It's impossible without God. Nobody warrants salvation. Nobody deserves it. Nobody merits it. Nobody earns it. Nobody not the blessed rich, not seminary professors, not even long-tenured pastors. Nobody deserves it. Nobody. And so you remember, uh, last week, when Jake was teaching, he said that, um, can you guys advance to the next screen for me? Peter said in reply, see, we have laughed everything and followed you. What then will we have? You know, Peter wants to know, will we, will we get in? If, if the rich young ruler doesn't get in, are we going to get in? And if we get in, what's in it for us? Is it, is it worth it? Because we've left everything. Um, and Jesus said, to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my sake, my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, I'm not sure if you caught it, but Jesus' answer to Peter's question is really problematic. Okay. Or at least it should be for us. Because Peter says, is it, do we get in? Is, is it going to be worth it for us? That's what he's asking. And Jesus says, way worth it. Okay. Way more than worth it. You are going to get a hundred times what you deserve. A hundred times what you deserve. And that's a problem, isn't it? That's not fair. That's not just, it seems to us. 
that we should be lavished a hundred times? I can tell that you guys are really troubled by that. The promise of receiving a hundred times what you deserve. It's upsetting to you, isn't it? Um, God is way too generous with us, isn't he? He's trying to give us far more than we deserve. Is that troubling to you? It's funny how that works, isn't it? But make no mistake about it. Jesus says to Peter, it's more than worth it, Peter, way more than worth it, a hundred times more than whatever it costs you, kind of worth it. And he's, it's interesting what he singles out. He says, if it costs you your house, it's a hundred times more than worth it. A hundred times more than worth it. If it costs you your lifestyle, if it costs you your comforts, your pleasures, your status, if it costs you the next level up the ladder, Jesus says, a hundred times worth it. And then he says, uh, what if it costs you a loved one? What if it costs you your children? And I, I think every week we flash pictures of these young families up here. I've been to Mombasa. I've been to their village. My kids have been in their medical clinic there because we were sick when we were there. Okay. And that's one of the nice places. When they go out into the bush, um, when these people in China and India travel out to the villages, there's virtually no access to treatment, and sometimes they take their kids along. What if something happens? Jesus is thinking about that when he says, if you give up your children a hundred times worth it. Jesus says, Peter, it's worth it. And then he ends with that statement that flashed up there. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Do you like that statement? Um, Matt Woodley tells a story about a friend of his whose reaction to this, and his reaction to this statement and to the story that Jesus tells about the vineyard workers all getting the same pay. He had a friend named Ray, who Ray was a recovering alcoholic, and he was utterly appalled by Jesus' parable of the vineyard workers. Uh, Matt writes, After I finished preaching on this text, I received the typical litany of nice sermon pastor until Ray used his massive body to block my exit from the church. Refusing to shake my hand, he bellowed, Are you kidding me? That's the dumbest story I've ever heard. You can't run the world according to Jesus. You can't treat people that way. Good people should get rewarded. Bad people, lazy latecomers, slackers, should get punished. The story turns everything wrong side up. It isn't just dumb. It's messed up and downright dangerous, racist. 
Um, but many who are first will be last and last first. Do you like that statement? I get the sense Ray didn't like it. And I guess it depends on whether you think you are among the firsts or the lasts, doesn't it? That, that determines whether or not you like that s- statement. Um, let me see if I can make sense out of it for you. You don't want to be first because you'll end up last. You need to be last because you'll end up first. Unless you are first first, then you'll be last last because you weren't last first. Does that help? That, that kind of driving home? Um, maybe we should hear Jesus' story again and see if what we want to do, we want to find ourselves in the story. Okay? And we want to find our God in the story. So let's walk back through it one more time. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, normal day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last and up to the first. So the story is describing the kingdom of heaven, right? It's, It's what life under the lordship of the king of heaven will be like. And in the story, the master of the house, evidently, he's got a lot of work to do. Uh, He's got a great harvest going on because he is hiring workers left and right, right? First thing in the morning, which is probably like 6 o'clock in the morning, he's hiring the first bunch of workers. He goes back around 9 and he hires more. He goes back at noon, he hires more. He goes back at 3 in the afternoon, he hires more. And then at 5 o'clock, an hour before quitting time, he goes out and hires more workers, So we would say of this master, um, when you read the whole story, we'd say he's the Lord of the vineyard. He hires whom he wills, when he wills, and he pays them what he wills, and it's not up for negotiation. He's the Lord of the vineyard, right? Um, We would say he's just. He says, when he sends the guys out, Later in the day, he says, uh, I'll give to you whatever's right. He's going to be just with them. And we find out, though, he's even beyond just. We would say he's crazy generous to his workers. Um, He intended to pay whatever is right, and he goes all the way to crazy generous, really troublingly generous to his workers, right? Um especially to those who are in the greatest need, to those who are still looking for work even at the end of the day. Um, and to all this, I, I love the little insight that Dale Bruner draws out of this. He says, he says that the landlord goes out himself 
and does not send his servant instead, that he goes out so often, and he goes out even at the 11th hour, all these little features in the story teach the great love of God for human beings. Isn't that neat? He adds, the Lord wants workers in his harvest more than he wants almost anything else in the world because the harvest is plentiful, right? So in case you missed it, the master of the house in the story is the Lord. It's our Lord. And he's sovereign and he's just and he's crazy generous, this Lord of ours. Well, let's, let's finish the story, and we need to find ourselves in, in the story. Uh, this should help. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received an entire day's wage. Guys worked one hour. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius one day's wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So let's find ourselves in this story, right? We're not the master of the house. That's God. So we're the workers, right? We're the day laborers hanging around down outside a Home Depot trying to get hired onto somebody's crew for the day. That's us. But we need to refine that question a bit. Which workers are we? Are, are we among the firsts or the lasts? That's a really important question for each of us to answer. I think that's right at the heart of the reason Jesus tells this story. Maybe it would help if we relabeled the firsts as the deserving. Okay? Let's call them the deserving. They're like the rich young man, right? Just from a couple stories ago. That rich young man Jesus had just encountered. Someone who thought he deserved to get into the kingdom because he'd been good enough. He'd done enough good stuff. He, in his own words, he kept all those commandments, right? Firsts are those who think that one day they can go toe-to-toe with God and they're going to come away measuring up for the most part. They deserve to get in because... Amongst the first, our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. Okay? And it's, it's really not even close. They, they way outweigh our bad deed, de- deeds. Okay? So we're good. If anybody's good when they go toe-to-toe with God on Judgment Day, the firsts are good. They've done what they're supposed to do. They deserve to get in. And once, once we firsts are in, we deserve the best of the rewards because we're better than the other guys. We worked longer, like 22 times longer. 
So the firsts, they're the first to be picked. They work hard. Um, They think they deserve better than the others because of what they've done. And they end up resenting the master's generosity to the lasts. Are you among the firsts? See, they are a vivid contrast with the other group of workers, the lasts. They, we would call the undeserving. They're way overpaid. They know it. And you have to wonder if the reason they were still hanging around unemployed at the 11th hour of the day is, one, they really needed work. But two, maybe they were really bad at it. Maybe they were the worst workers. Maybe they were the least skilled guys, and nobody wanted to hire them. They were the undeserving, and the firsts know it. That's why when they got paid the same as the last, they grumbled to the master of the house, saying, these lasts... They worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They resent, these first resent, excuse me, someone less deserving than them getting what they, the first, have worked so very hard to deserve. They become envious. They cannot rejoice. They even go so far as to begrudge the master's generosity to someone who's less deserving than they are. Dale Bruner points out that the firsts come perilously close to the elder brother in Luke's parable of the prodigal son. Isn't that an interesting comparison? He says, both are mad at goodness and boast of their own. Both are mad at goodness and boast of their own. So are you a first? Are you among the firsts? Do you think that you deserve, even a little bit, what you get from God? Do you think you deserve just a little bit more than the others? Do you resent others who deserve it less but get just as much? Maybe even more than you. That Maybe they get the promotion you deserved. Or they get the spotlight you deserved. Or they get the solo. Or they get the preach. Or they get the attention. They get the praise. They get the raise. They get the grade that you deserved. When that happens, do you think you deserve better? Are you a first? Are you among the firsts? Let's hope not. Because firsts get rebuked by the master. And they're actually told to take their pay and leave. What does Jesus mean by that? Take your pay and get out. Are they excluded from the kingdom? Do they, do they forfeit a great reward? He doesn't say. But it's clear 
that you don't want to be among the firsts. At least not at first, right? See, this, um, this story, which I'm dragging out way too long, this story um, seems to be the second part of Jesus' answer to Peter's question back in chapter 19. Remember Peter's question? Essentially, he says, is it worth it? Another way to think about it, he's saying, what's in it for us, Jesus? What we've sacrificed, so what do we get? And the first part of Jesus' answer, if you remember, we looked at it, and Jake taught us that last week. Jesus says, on the one hand, it's way more than worth it. It's a hundred times worth it. The first part of Jesus' answer, then, to Peter's question is addressed to the disciples when they see themselves among the lasts. Okay? Lasts who shall be first. It's way worth it. But the second part of Jesus' answer to Peter's question is our story about the vineyard workers. And it's more of a warning than it is a comfort. And bottom line kind of sounds like this. Beware of thinking you deserve it. Beware of thinking that you deserve to be among the firsts. Because, and Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus says it again to bracket this story. He said it right before the story, now he's going to say it afterwards. He says, the last will be first, and the first last. Do you like that saying? It really depends on where you see yourself. Because our story and this saying, it's a comfort and a joy to the lasts. And it's a warning to the firsts. Which are you? You want to be among the lasts at first. Okay. Um, how do you become a last? How do you get among the lasts? How do you get your heart there? And again, I like what Dale Brunery says, the lasts became first by sheer grace, not by work performed. The firsts became lasts because of a bloated self-consciousness, not from a failure to do good works. Lasts, he says, become firsts by grace. Firsts become lasts by hubris, by pride. See, the key to the last is that they recognize their undeservedness and they are ecstatic with what they get from God. They can't believe it. You imagine what these guys did with their paycheck? What did they say to their wives when they got home? They went out at a fancy restaurant that night. See, the key to the lasts is that they recognize their undeservedness, their lastness, which is their, it's humility in a word. 
Jesus says, you have to become the least. Like little children. In Luke chapter 9, he says, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The least. He says elsewhere, you have to, you have to be a servant. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Considering others more important, more deserving, lasts have a great awareness of their undeservedness, of their own sin before a very, very holy God. And that's why lasts know this one thing above all things. This is what, this is what defines lasts. They know that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross because of and for them. He had to go there for them. They had no other hope. They were totally undeserving. They were without merit, without warrant. And that's why I think immediately after Jesus' story of the vineyard workers and the last and the firsts, Matthew turns our thoughts towards Jerusalem. These are the very next verses. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus, you can tell, he foreknew his horrible suffering in remarkable detail. I mean, look at, look at what he's predicting, the precision of what he's predicting, of what he knew awaited him. He knew the shape of his suffering. He knew who would inflict it, and he knew where it would happen. And he went there anyway, knowing all this. Because he loves to see lasts become first. And that's what it took. That's how lasts become first. It's all of grace, all of Jesus. Dale Bruner says lasts become first in this story, not because they've done enough good works, but because they have a good Lord. A Lord who invites them into his field at all, even at the latest possible hours, and who then rewards them as though they had done a full day's work. Lasts become first in this story. Not because they've done enough good works, but because they have a good Lord, an incredibly good Lord. Such is the love of Christ for those who are last and stand in acknowledged need of a Savior. Those, those who acknowledge that they are undeserving and they need grace. To get in. Matt Woodley tells another story about a friend of his, another friend, 
Uh, this friend's name is George, and George was sharing his story of his journey to Christ. And uh, he says he was sitting in a dingy church basement confessing a sordid tale of sexual sin. After starting with pornography, he moved on to high-priced escort services, but then he hit bottom, he says. His life unraveled. He lost his job. His family disowned him, and his wife was leaving him. But now, Woodley writes, like the prodigal son, George had finally come to his senses. And when he finished this tale of filth and mercy, George asked to share a poem he had just discovered. With hands shaking, he unraveled a scrap of paper and told us, I've been carrying this all week, and it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. He says, you guys have probably never heard this before, but it goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And that is how lasts become firsts. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. And we dare not begrudge that to one another. We dare not forget that that is what allows us access to the king, entrance to the kingdom. But Jesus knew we would. He knew that we would forget. And that's why he told this story. He told it for us. And that's why he gave us this table. And he told us never to forget, but to always remember the one who went up to Jerusalem and to the cross for us. To bring amazing grace for lasts like us. And so now... We get to come to a table for lasts. To those who need grace to help them in their time of need. And we get to remember and worship the one who went up to Jerusalem for us. He went up to the mocking and the flogging and to crucifixion so that lasts could be made firsts in the kingdom, all by undeserved, costly, lavish grace by Jesus. And so we want to remember together that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is, this is the blood of the covenant. It's my blood poured out for your sins, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me.
And so it's our privilege now as God's people to come and, and to remember and not forget how lasts become firsts. To remember and not forget that we are the most undeserving. We are the 11th hour workers. Hired in by grace of the master. At great cost. That Jesus went to Jerusalem to die on the cross. Mocked, flogged, beaten for us. And so the table at North Wake is open for anyone who recognized that they're last and trusts Jesus and his work on the cross to make them first in the kingdom. Would you bow with me? Let's approach the table together.